The scripture this morning is uh, from Luke, the seventh chapter, beginning in verse 36, the story that Mary told the children. Now, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus uh, to dinner, he went uh, to the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. When a woman of the city who lived a sinful life heard that Jesus was there at the home, she came bringing an alabaster jar of ointment. And she st- as she stood behind Jesus weeping, uh, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe the tears with her hair. And she kissed the feet and then she took the jar of perfume and put it on them. And then the Pharisee who had invited Jesus thought to himself, if this man were really a prophet, he would know what sort of woman this is and, and what she has done. She is a sinner. Jesus responded, Simon, I have something to say to you. Tell me, teacher, he said. There were two men who owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed 500 denarii and another owed 50 denarii. Now the two men were not able to pay back what they owed the lender, and so he forgave the debt of them both. Now which one of these men do you suppose loved the lender more? Well, the one who had the larger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Simon. Now, do you see this woman? When I came into the house, you did not offer me water for my feet. And yet she washed my feet with her hair and her tears. You did not greet me with a kiss, but she has not stopped kissing my feet since I entered here. And you offered me no perfume for my head, but she has brought the jar of ointment for my feet. I tell you, her sins, though many, are forgiven as shown by her great love. For whoever is forgiven little, loves little. And then he said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. And the crowd said, who is this that even forgives sins? And then he said to the woman, go in peace. Your faith has made you whole. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. This week, I was thinking what a fun thing distractions are from time to time, though not everybody appreciates uh, a distraction. You probably saw the video clip of uh, the soldiers who were returning to Fort Carson uh, from Asia. And so there was a ceremony to welcome them back. But one little girl could wait no longer for the ceremony to be over. And in the middle of the ceremony, she ran to her father who's returning uh, to the States and grabbed him and hugged him on his leg. Uh, But I thought there was even more interesting... Uh, on YouTube distraction. I I really recommend you look at this. I don't know if you've seen it. Apparently, a couple weeks ago, there was a high school football game in the uh, Northeast, I think in Massachusetts. But the halftime entertainment was a peewee football game, a mighty might football game between two little league teams. And so the two teams are, are uh, set up to scrimmage at about, the ten, about 10 yards away from the gold line. There's a, a red team and, and a white team. When suddenly, in, in the midst of the scrimmage, music comes over the PA system into the stadium. And, and if you're familiar with it, it's a very popular song that came out, I think, in May or, and over the summer and, uh, and popularizes a dance called the whip and the nay-nay. Now, I'm not going to demonstrate that for you this morning because quite frankly, my sabbatical wasn't that relaxing. 
But at any rate, it's well known and apparently known by these kids. So when the music comes on, some of them quit playing and they start dancing. And then there are others who play, but when the play is over, they're dancing before the next play is called. And so you have a mixture of playing and dancing. And if you turn it on, you've got to watch number 57 in red. Uh, and, And you have all this going on. But what is really interesting is listening to, I guess, the parents screaming over the video. And some of them are trying to get their kids' attention to make the tackle to be into the play. Uh, They're not amused by the distraction. Uh, But then everybody else is laughing and joyful over these kids that have stopped football long enough to dance. And, you know, I think a good distraction is lots of fun, but not everybody appreciates it. Years ago... I was pastor in a smaller church, and, and one beautiful spring morning, the weather was great, and so uh, the people in the choir loft opened some of the windows that uh, were there by the choir loft and got some beautiful, uh, wonderful, fresh air into the choir loft. Well, so I go and start preaching, and suddenly I notice uh, people aren't paying attention. Now, that's a phenomenon with which I'm pretty uh, familiar, uh, but this is even more so. And so I notice they're looking behind me, and I turn, and apparently my cat has come in through the choir loft window, is at the base of the altar table, getting ready to jump up to get the communion bread that she's been smelling. And, and so she does make the leap. We get her, put her out, uh, out the window of the choir loft. And what was interesting to me is a lot of people in the church thought this was absolutely hilarious. And some were offended that a cat would make their way to the altar table. You know, some people like a good intrusion, interruption, and, well, some don't. And that's what we've got in today's story. There's a dinner party thrown by a Pharisee named Simon, and there is an intrusion, an interruption. A woman comes in who is not on the guest list. In fact, she wouldn't be on anybody's guest list because she is said to be a woman of the city who is a sinner. Now, the exact nature of her sin is not described, but what we know is it's public. Everybody in town knows the woman's a sinner. And she comes up to one of the guests of honor, Jesus, and begins to cry and, uh, and wash his feet uh, with her tears and wipe them with her hair and, and put ointment on him. Uh, and, and Jesus seems to appreciate this interruption. Seems almost to validate it or encourage it. But Simon is not happy about it at all. And so Simon thinks to himself, you know, if this man Jesus were a prophet, if, you know, if he knew what everybody says he knows, he'd know what sort of woman this is. That she's a sinner. But of course, here's the deal, isn't it? Jesus does know stuff. And that Jesus knows not what the woman does as much as, as what the woman's condition of her heart is. And he sees by her actions that this is a woman who is grateful to him for his love and forgiveness. Perhaps she had experienced it in town, had heard him preach. We don't know. But she has uh, acted and he sees a heart full of gratitude. And then he looks at Simon who's got like, you know, the Grinch-sized heart, you know, the pea-sized heart. And lives a small and, and petty and ungrateful life. And as the prophet he is, he, he goes right in and diagnoses it. And he says this, he said, you know, whoever is forgiven little, loves little. And that's his diagnosis of the situation. Well, let me say a couple of things to kind of help 
clear up the story maybe. The first thing is this. This is not a woman who had to jump the White House fence to get into the party. And these days in Galilee, the houses are fairly open. So anyone can find their way in there. She didn't have to sneak past guards. The other thing is, in Greco-Roman style, those who were middle to class and above ate the affluent ate in a style where they reclined at the table. They weren't sitting in chairs. And, and so when they're reclining, their, their feet are obviously uh, out in front of them exposed. And so I don't want you to have a picture of a woman like climbing under the table trying to find the right pair of feet. I mean, Jesus, she has easy access to Jesus and, and she uses that access and pours her love out to him. And Jesus said, you know, this woman's sins are forgiven. Well, another thing to note, though, is this is not, he says, as shown by her love. This is not some sort of transaction, some sort of trade. Uh, we love Jesus. He forgives us in exchange. Um, I think sometimes feel, people feel like the Lord's Prayer operates the same way. Forgive us our sins as we forgive others. And, and so we kind of think, well, I, we need to forgive so we'll be forgiven. That's not the way Jesus looks at it, uh, nor would most rabbis look at it that way. It's this. I can tell whether you're forgiven or not by how you love and forgive other people. Yeah, forgive us our sins, and, and that will be evidenced by the way that we forgive others. And so this is a woman who experiences great forgiveness, and it's displayed in her actions. It's displayed in what I would say is a wonderful act of worship. She comes and, uh, and washes Jesus' feet and pours this perfume over him. So what I want to say to you, I hope plainly this morning, is that what the woman has done for Jesus out of her gratitude is an act of worship. And that uh, worship is one of the main ways that we connect with our God to both give love and receive love. Now you remember this fall we're talking about connection, being connected to God, being connected to other people, being connected to a larger world. And we started last week by talking about the, the most um, foundational thing in our connection to God is to understand that we are loved unconditionally, that we are valued as, as uh, beloved sons and daughters of God. That's the first foundation point. So today we want to talk about having had that love poured into us, what's our response? And one of the ways we respond to God through connection is to pour out our love back to God. And we do it uh, in a number of ways, but all of those ways would be considered worship. And so if you walk with me that far this morning, I want to make three suggestions about worship based on some things that I see in the story. The first one is this. I think our worship, our response to God ought to be extravagant. Uh, it, it ought to be joyful. It ought to be free. It ought to be generous. Um, Donna gave me a whiff of the likely uh, um, uh, ointment that was in that jar called spikenard. And then I want to tell you a couple things about it. One is it, it smells. You can tell it's there a mile away. Another thing is it was often used and put on people to give them courage or encouragement. Which is fascinating when you consider the journey that's going to be ahead of Jesus and Luke, that, that, this, that she might be encouraging him for that journey. Uh, the other thing, though, is it was extremely expensive. It is quite likely, and you may have seen this footnote in your Bible, it's quite likely that an alabaster jar of this kind of ointment was a year's salary, a year's wages. Now, we sometimes in our ungenerous state want to talk about how the woman came across that money in the first place. Jesus isn't interested in that. Jesus is interested in what she does 
with what, ha- she, what she now has. And she gives of it freely and generously. And that's what happens in worship. We freely and generously give of ourselves in a variety of ways, not the least of which is through the offering plate, but prayers, praise, service, um, uh, even mentioned by the children, doing something before you're asked to do it. I mean, all of those are wonderful ways of, of worshiping generously, or we might even say extravagantly. There's a great story in the Old Testament that David wants to build the temple for God. And so David finds the perfect piece of land. And so he goes to the owner of the land and says, you know, I, I need this land uh, for uh, the worship of God. And the owner's response is, hey, if it's for God, you can have it. Now, there are a couple of different explanations. One uh, group of scholars think that's just a Middle Eastern bargaining technique, knowing that the response will be, oh, no, no, I, I, I couldn't do that. And then you start negotiating the price. Could be. The other is just his sense is if it's for God, you can take it. But either way, it's David's response that I find most interesting. He said, I am not going to worship God with something that costs me nothing. He understands that there is something about worship that involves an extravagant pouring out of ourselves, a generous giving, dare we even say, a sacrifice. This is what Paul would say about worship to Romans 12. He would say to the people in Rome, make your lives a living sacrifice. He said, make your very lives an act of worship. Pour it back out to God in response. And so we see that worship is not just something that happens on a Sunday morning, but happens all during the week before Sunday and then all during the week flowing from Sunday. That our, all of our very lives are response to God's extravagant act of love, so we generously pour back with our lives, and I would term that worship. Now, the second thing to know about this, though, is what Jesus, the observation that he makes is there seems to be a tie between our correlation between our loving response, our generous response, and our sense of being forgiven. So the person who doesn't feel forgiven loves very little. But he goes deeper in that when he tells the two story, the story about the two men, one who owes 50 denarii, the other 500. Jesus seems to say, and your sense of forgiveness is probably dependent on just how in debt you think you are. Let me put it another way. Your sense of forgiveness is probably in correlation to just how sinful you recognize that you are. And when I looked at that story, I go, that's why sometimes my worship is so small. That's why sometimes I'm so reserved in my obedience to God throughout the week. And that is because, quite frankly, I don't think I'm that big a sinner. My wife's here, so it's kind of hard to make a blanket statement. But I think I'm a pretty good guy. Uh, When I was in high school, uh, the tennis team did all sorts of things. And hopefully there's a statute of limitations. but, um, But I was the designated driver. I was the one to get them out of all the trouble that, that they were getting into. Um, you know, I'm like the older brother in the prodigal story. I'm pretty much hanging around the house, pretty dutiful. I'm just, you know, I'm not that bad. I think of myself as sort of a 50 denarii kind of debtor. But here's the deal. 50 denarii in that day, that's a lot of money. That's a month to two months worth of wages. In other words, there's no small sinner in this story. All of us have fallen short of the glory and love and the plan of God. And all of us 
have sinned by things we said that we shouldn't have said, by things that we should have said and, and we held back, by things that we did and we shouldn't have done, by acts of care um, and giving that we should have enacted and, and we hesitated to do so. All of us fall into the range of sinner. And there's no small sinner and big sinner in a sense. It, there's all of us falling short of, of God. One of the ways that I think of it is like this. If we had a ladder from the floor... To like right here, uh, and God would be at the top. And so here's God with God's level of perfection and holiness and wonder. Well, up to that level of perfection, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, where might we be on that ladder? Well, let me give you some mile markers just to help you. Down here by my knees, okay? All right, here's God. Here's my knees. There's Mother Teresa. Go down a couple inches. There's Pope Francis. Go down to the first step. There I am. The difference and distance in sin between me and Mother Teresa is much, much smaller than the difference between Mother Teresa and, and God. Does that make sense? None of us are that righteous, perfect person. And to the extent that we can admit that, own up to that is the extent at which we can finally accept the forgiveness and grace that God offers. Now, let me tie this in with last week. Remember, foundational is that we are loved unconditionally and we are valued. We are beloved sons and daughters. But it doesn't mean we're perfect. So you start with God's unconditional love, then you can handle and appropriately respond to a recognition of sin. But you need both of them. You need both of them, and to the extent that you and I are willing to recognize, yeah, I have sinned, and I've been forgiven, is the extent that you and I can truly, generously, and gratefully worship God. So I believe worship is our generous outpouring of our love in response to God, that the depth of that outpouring is going to be on whether we recognize that we uh, are, are sinners who have been Forgiven. And the last thing, though, is this. I think worship, I've learned, is not just an opportunity to pour out love to God, but actually for me has become a wonderful opportunity to receive love back from God. So I, I come in and I recognize, I come in to pour out my love, and I've got this jar, and what happens is after an hour with you all, I come back in, with the, I come out with a bigger jar. Because it's not just a place to give love, it's a place to receive love. It's where I come in with a small heart and I leave with a larger heart because worship is a place not just to give but to receive love. Abraham Joshua Heschel, wonderful rabbi of the 20th century, wrote a classic book on the Sabbath. But one of the interesting things he said is this, that the world will not be destroyed because of a lack of information. He said the world will fall apart because of a lack of appreciation. And one of the things that happens when I come into this worship environment and setting is I get a growing appreciation of how loved and how valued I am and how you and I have much more in common together than what we have that divides us from each other or from others. And so I come in about this size and I've got my jar and I come out this size with a bigger jar because worship is a place not only to give love, but to receive it as well. Reminds me of a story. Years ago, a family's out for a drive on a Sunday afternoon. 
Wonderful drive. Dad in the driver's seat, mom in the passenger seat, two kids, eight and six in the back. And they're driving, and one of the kids sees something by the side of the road and said, Dad, Dad, stop the car. And Dad's like, why? And he said, well, it's something on the side of the road, and I, I think it was a cat, and we need to stop and pull over. Dad looks at Mom and said, you know, it's, it's a nice drive. We should keep going. And then the kids in the back are going, oh, and they're crying. They're going, we didn't know Daddy was so mean. Daddy's heartless. He doesn't care. Mom's looking at Dad like, you know, if I were you, I'd pull over. So... Pulls the car over, turns around, goes back, and sure enough, the cat's still standing there by the side of the road. And he says to the kids, don't get out. Don't touch it. It probably has leprosy or something. So opens the trunk, gets a towel out, goes to where the cat is, reaches down to wrap the cat in the towel. Come here, tiger. Starts to get him. And the cat's response is to look up at this man. And the front claws all come out. And the cat... A big hiss. Dad's able to overcome that, wraps him in a towel, puts him there in the back seat with the kids and say, you can touch the towel, but don't touch him. He's probably got leprosy. Well, they take him home and they give him a bath, not just with shampoo, but with conditioner. And then comes the perfume. And then comes the brushing. And then comes the bed for the cat. A bed that actually would probably be fit for Queen Elizabeth or Will and Kate if they were to come to your house for a visit. And then six weeks later, the cat gets out of his luxurious bed one day, walks over, and there's Dad watching evening news in the rocking chair, and comes up next to Dad, and Dad reaches down, this time without a towel. And the response is that the cat then rubs up against Dad and begins to purr. Now here's the question. Is that the same cat they picked up on the side of the road? And the answer is yes. And no, because when any one of us is exposed to a consistent diet of love, we are not the same person. We come to worship, we give and receive love, and we leave a new person.